Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today on the Vintage Podcast, we are talking identity, specifically British identity. Afo Hirsch is a phenomenal writer and broadcaster. She has worked as a barrister, as the West African correspondent for The Guardian, and as social editor for Sky News. Her book British is a personal and provocative investigation of what our British identity crisis is really about. Afwa was patient and kind enough to let me ask her some questions about misconceptions, things that she didn't know about British identity, things that I discovered while reading the book, what a diverse person is, inverted audio commas, and how we navigate the landscapes of race, identity and belonging for a new age. Thank you so much for being here, Afwa. Thank you for um, having me. Really appreciate it. And I apologise for asking any stupid questions no, <laughs> during this interview. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Um, have, have you experienced any stupid questions when being asked about the book? Is there anything that you're like, oh, stop asking me that? Well, or... the thing is, is that the book is partly a response to like being asked stupid questions all my life. So, <laughs> so you'd hope that you've shot them I, down. I, in yeah, the first I chapter. feel like anyone who reads the book will probably stop asking those questions <laughs> rather than start. So, that, and that's actually one of the intent effects I think to get people to think about what they ask people Mm -hmm. especially you know these innocent well-meaning questions that's really what I'm going up with the book I'm not going after racists or Mm. people who are deliberately kind of bigoted or prejudiced you know because I don't feel like I can really reach people like that and you know Mm. but it's people who would be horrified if anyone said that they were racist who really considered themselves part of the solution rather than part of the problem but who haven't like interrogated some of their own underlying ideas. And I think that plays itself out in a way that can be quite alienating for people. And that's something I really wanted to get across in the book. Yeah, I feel there's a lot of people who kind of, they know what they know, they know what they don't know, but they're not thinking, this book feels like it's about all those things that like some people might not know they don't know. Exactly. <laughs> that double layer of exactly, ignorance. Exactly, like... you're so unaware of it that you don't even know that you don't know it. Exactly. Mm. Is there anything um, that you that would surprise you when you were researching the book? Is there anything that you were like, hey, yeah, I didn't know that? Loads. Um, like there's a chapter um, about where I grew up in mm. Wimbledon. And I think Wimbledon is a very English part of London. You know, London's this great, multicultural, diverse, cosmopolitan, global city. Mm. Wimbledon is like... Quintessential, it's strawberries like and cream of old-fashioned <laughs> Englishness. And I think it's one of those cyclical things or circular things that because it's so English, it attracts people who are attracted to that, mm. which are basically more people who buy into kind of old-fashioned, nostalgic Englishness. So it's not re- like reflective of London. And I grew up there feeling that my African heritage was kind of the polar opposite of the Mm. place that I lived. Wimbledon is like everything English, kind of whiteness and cues and lawn tennis and strawberries and cream. And it was so fascinating to me when I researched the area to realise that not only is the empire kind of omnipresent in Wimbledon, but my own family's experience in Ghana is rooted in the local environment, you know. So I it really made me think if my family's African history is present here, mm. where I've spent my whole life under my nose and I didn't know it, what else is there all around us that we are so unaware of? Because this history has just been erased. Yeah, and this, this is about um, Ralph... Baden-Powell. Oh, sorry, Robert. Yeah. Robert Baden-Powell, who wrote scouting for boys Mm -hmm. which was 
the second most successful English language book after the Bible mm-hmm. in the 20th century. He wrote that book on Wimbledon Common by the windmill, which is literally at the end of my road, which is I grew up kind of going for walks there on Sunday afternoons mm-hmm. with my family. I've been, there's a museum to him in the windmill. It's like an 18th century um, hollow post corn mill, very rare. Lots of people visit it. And I was a brownie as a child. So, you know, the kind of ideology he created is something that yeah. I directly, I was conditioned by. I had no idea that scouting was influenced by his time fighting in colonial wars in Africa. And more than that, when the English decided to um, defeat the Ashanti Empire once and for all so that they could turn what was then the Gold Coast into a colony, mm. he led a group of African mercenaries to march to Kumasi, the capital of the old Ashanti Empire. And it was that experience. It was the knotting techniques and the hacking through vines and using a, a um, using a staff that became quintessential characteristics of scouting. It inspired mm. scouting. But yet scouting for him was kind of drawing on the noble savage idea that Africans are really good in the outdoors. Um, but that's basically all they're good for. And using that to bolster the kind of innate superiority of white boys, that was his mission, to give English boys a sense of their true place in the world as leaders to subjugate inferior races. That's what he believed. And his um, assault on the Ashanti Empire turned my family into refugees. My whole family history was shaped by that war, which he led. And I grew up like in his shadow. It wasn't in the Brownie Guard handbag. It's not even in the museum. You can't get a badge. Dedicated <laughs> to him. It's an invisible history that's right mm. under my feet. And so that was really revelatory to me because it made me think that must be the tip of the iceberg. What else are we walking on mm. and around that we have no idea is there? And how does that shape our identity? Because for me, it, it reinforced this idea that Africa's over there and Britain is over here and the two are polar opposites mm-hmm. and African is other in alien. Yeah. And actually it's complete lie. You know, these histories are intimately interconnected over centuries and mm. everyone in England has some connection to this history of empire mm. just because of the role it played in creating jobs or in building the economy or providing income or you know whatever it was it's um, a fundamental part of our history and we're all ignorant of it and I yeah. include myself in that until I researched this book I had no idea because I think as well there's a lot of narrative around um, American diversity and, and the talk of how everybody's an immigrant in America but mm. but I think a lot of British people step back from that because they're like well, we, well we've always been here and then it's the kind of this Anglo-Saxon I'm like well the, the clue's in the name guys <laughs> it sounds like we haven't always been here and this it's... idea that there are indigenous mm. people and that indigenous Englishness is white mm. and I think that this affects Englishness more than other identities in mm. the union although you know I mean there are separate and really interesting conversations that you can have about Northern Irish and Welsh and Scottish identities but I think Englishness is an identity that has been affected more than others by the end of empire and that Mm. was tied to this sense of imperial superiority. And I think that and if you just have to ask white English people exist who will tell you that they are indigenous and the concept of it being indigenous is is really embedded, I think, in a lot of people's consciousness. Mm. And it's not true. You know, we are also an immigrant nation. It's just the immigration started longer ago. Mm. But um, there were Africans in Britain before there were English people in Britain. And I honestly don't think people know that. And I think if they did and if they understood that, it would affect their sense of who is entitled to be here Mm. and on what terms. And there is definitely this narrative that there are indigenous white people who've been living here happily until all of these immigrants came and ruined the party. And that has really serious effects for people like me who... um, 
are visibly descended from immigrants and people I think believe that we just showed up sometime in 20th century to get some benefits mm. basically not knowing that you know our ancestors helped build this country may have been here for centuries um, and that our history and British history are one mm. and I think that if I'd have understood that growing up it would have really affected my sense of my belonging in this country mm. um, so in a way writing this book was part of me trying to repair that wound you know and I think there are still people growing up with the same confusion and the same lack of context you know you feel rootless as somebody who is black or brown in this country you don't see yourself reflected in anything um in any tradition or any any kind of any long-term memory yeah and it gives you a sense of rootlessness that you don't really belong here you're kind of a recent arrival you're great you don't have a you don't have a past here and it's Mm. if that were true it would be a different conversation but it's not true yeah i think as well this um I, I don't know how you feel about the, the the way people sometimes treat this conversation about diversity as a as a trend or as mm. something that we can just solve in a fast way. And you talk mm. you talked in an interview about um, uh, being called a diverse person, and you were like, <laughs> "Wait, how can one person be a diverse person?" It doesn't make sense. So. I mean, the, the the thing I feel is that there's this um, ignorance, and I don't really mean that in a pejorative way. I you know I regard myself as having been ignorant. I think we because we all don't have access to the full range of facts about yeah. this country. And I think it manifests in so many ways. And it's kind of like until you treat the root cause, everything else just becomes a symptom. So you create a new word that's supposed to be inclusive and it just gets co-opted into ignorance. You know, I mean, the idea that I can be a diverse person, that basically whiteness is normal and everything else is diverse and that it's part of my identity, that I get up in the morning and look in the mirror and see a diverse person. (laughs) It just kind of symbolizes everything that's wrong, Mm. I think. And um, you can't solve that by creating new acronyms, Mm. you know, kind of inventing BAME and throwing it around doesn't solve these underlying problems and actually it's just kind of papering over the cracks Mm. and that's really my frustration with some of the language it's not that I'm against a project of finding words that are inclusive and name people's identity that I think we definitely need but we're not doing that we're just coming up with these kind of like categories political mm. meaningless empty categories Mm. and embracing them as a way of getting around the actual problem and not having to talk about it as far as action points go um like where are some key places that that you think that we could all start from so there's obviously the issue of education in general Mm. and that starts from a very young age you were talking Mm. about not even being told about it Mm. um is it something that we look at on a a, a more political law-based level is it something that you know i don't don't have the answers either but it's like one of those things is like how do we move forward um it's a huge question i mean in terms of law i think that my lifetime is an example of how having the right like constitutional and legal framework is necessary but not sufficient. Mm. So I did not grow up in a time, and I know people who did, when if you have brown skin, you get chased down the street by people wielding baseball bats and, you know, you fear for your life Mm. every day after school. Um, People just 10 or 15 years older than me, that was their daily reality in childhood. So I do not take for granted how much things have improved. Um, And in a way, I have the luxury of thinking about identity in a bit of a more cerebral way because it's not a fight for my physical safety. Mm. So and that's because of the progress that was made before my time. And so I don't want to be complacent about that. That's really important. But I think that we can now see the limits to that because that in its own doesn't solve these problems. Mm. I think political leadership is a big part of the problem. If you listen to 
successive leaders, you know, whether it's David Cameron, Gordon Brown, Michael Gove, all of these politicians have talked about British history as a celebratory subject. Mm -hmm. And that as, as soon as you take that starting point, you've already lost because you are already demonstrating that you have not you have no tolerance or interest in any facts that contradict your narrative of celebration. Mm. And I think that is partly a symptom of having won the Second World War and having a victor's idea of history. You know, we are on the right side of history and anything that's not compatible with that sense of Britishness is an inconvenient fact that is to be avoided. Mm. And I think that, you know, not to take away from the Second World War and, you know, how different the world would be if we hadn't, done what we did that doesn't mean that everything that happened before that is kind of no longer relevant mm. you know we're talking about hundreds thousands of years of history um and i think that we've all got very complacent in this idea that we were right we are victorious mm. and we don't need to do any hard work mm. you know we don't have anything in our past that needs exercising the germans do because they lost and they were <laughs> bad but we're great mm. and I think, you know, people tell me I'm not patriotic and they say things like, if you hate it here so much, why don't you go back to where you came from or find somewhere else? Um, and I find that so ironic. It's because I believe in Britishness that I have faith in it, that it is an identity capable of being honest about its past. You know, I think I am the one who sees the potential. And when people feel that they're not willing to um, embrace historical facts. It just reveals to me their fragility, that they're so insecure in their identity that they feel it can't withstand any challenge to or this nuance. narrative. Yeah, yeah, that we're great and victorious and anything else, I'm not, I don't want to hear it. Mm. And if you're bringing it, I'm shooting you down. You know, it's this kind of shoot the messenger mentality. Mm. So I wouldn't be doing any of this if I didn't care about this country and if I didn't want it to be a place where people who are British can unequivocally belong. It's because I didn't experience that that I care so much about trying mm. to improve it for future generations. But I mean, you're right to ask, what are the answers? Mm. My book's trying to set out the scale of the problem and show how basic a level we're at. Mm. So the first step to me is acknowledging that this is something that needs to be talked about, that saying you don't see race or you don't see colour is not the answer. And I think that is a really ingrained tendency that I, I feel very strongly about challenging. Do you ever struggle? Because I think a lot of these conversations happen online. Mm. It often gives British people mm. an excuse to escape the mm. awkward conversations that are specifically British. Mm. So especially I was looking into the history of like dames and knights mm. and, and being accepted as, a, as part mm. of the British Empire's mm. realm. Uh, and, and they're things that often they're people that we look up to that take mm. these honours. Mm. But actually looking into what they mean like um do you ever um struggle to separate the like the conversation online about um ge general um uh diversity with with america and then mm. a very specific british conversation yeah i think that i mean one of the one of the things i've written in the last year that's had the mm. most traction not necessarily in a good way was this column i wrote about nelson's column mm. which was triggered by the confederate statue debate and the reaction in britain because i felt that british people were saying oh my god americans are so racist they have these confederate statues can you imagine thank god we don't have any of those problems and mm. i was like look um we don't have the same history as america however we do have figures that we are currently in the business of venerating who have mm. what I think we would universally now acknowledge as white supremacist background mm. um, and 
the reaction to that was remarkable. It was so defensive and hostile. People mm. just did not want to hear it. Again, it was this fragility, like don't mess with our icons. Yeah. Um, and that really showed me, I think, how much work there is to do in locating the debate here. It's so easy to look across the Atlantic and think that they have so many problems. Mm. You know, Black Lives Matter doesn't matter here because it's only like a few dozen black people get killed by the police, not hundreds like in America. That's what people say. And, you know, I think that that it's important to have this conversation in Britain. I mean, in in defence of British people, I've also been, my book's not out yet. It comes out on the 1st of February. I have been overwhelmed by the response so far, how open people have been of all backgrounds and ethnicities Mm -hmm. to saying, you know, I hadn't thought about this or this is making me question my own behaviour or I can really relate to this. Mm. Um, And I think it is touching a nerve with a lot of people and I really respect people for that because I know it doesn't necessarily make easy reading. It wasn't easy to write. It was at times involved some quite painful retrospection and um, I think that this is a moment where people are open to revisiting things. I think people are getting a sense of, in a way, the potential to regress, you know, and, you know, my partner who's in the book, um, Sam, when um, Trump was elected, he said, this is good. And, you know, we had a huge argument about it. And I loved Obama. I related to him on a personal level, I think, mm. because he was a mixed heritage and, you know, he had an African parent and he he wrote a book about his identity struggles, which I massively related to. Um, and my partner said no people got really complacent under Obama this is good it's showing people what's really going on and I really disagreed with him but I have to say I think he's right um I think that it was too easy under Obama to think that we'd won the argument and you know we were just kind of on this straight line towards progress and equality and Trump has really revealed the extent to which people have not bought into that and reject it and want to fight against it and I think that you need to reveal those divisions because you can't take them on unless they're visible you know and there was all this closet anger and hostility and prejudice and people felt threatened by the idea of black people progressing or you know equal rights Mm. Um, so whilst it is ugly to see especially I find it really difficult to see I think that it's better and healthier to be able to see it rather than know it's kind of lurking in the background. If we're looking for new heroes and new mythologies about Ah. Britain, is there any British person in history that you'd be like, that's a great British person, we should think (laughs) about them? Mm, I'm really, um, I've been really moved by learning about the Sons of Africa Mm -hmm. because I had no idea that in 18th century Britain, there was, I knew there were black people, but there were organizations, movements. Sons of Africa was a pan-Africanist organization, you know, a full two centuries before the pan-Africanists that caused independence um, for African countries in the British Empire. And they were in Westminster, you know. They, I did not know and, this. You know, Ignatius Sancho and Oluda Equiano. Mm. These guys were there and they were writing and publishing. They were activists, you know. They wrote letters that were turned into books. They wrote eloquent speeches. When we think about abolition, we think about William Wilberforce and we have completely erased. Most people don't know these people's names. Mm. And I just found it really powerful to see black British people expressing their identity, their dual heritage, their dual perspective, their activism in writing in the 1700s, you know, on the same streets that I walk every day at work. That to me was really powerful because it was a history that I could kind of like touch and feel. 
Um, so I would love, to, you know, why are, isn't there a statue to the Sons of Africa in Westminster? We need to fill Trafalgar Square with statues. There are loads and loads <laughs> of people who are missing. Loads mm. of people who are missing. I think Kwame Nkrumah is an incredibly important figure in Britain because he was radicalised in London. It was being in London during the Second World War and the hypocrisy of all this rhetoric of liberation and freedom and realising that that only applied to white people, you know, that, that really kind of... Um, elevated his activism mm. and this incredible man who came from the most humble origins went back to Ghana and basically triggered the end of the empire in Africa which mm. has had lasting geopolitical consequences for the world and most British people don't know his name yeah. you know these are just some of the figures that I really admire I yeah. mean there are so many there are so many gaps and I think to be completely honest with you when I was younger and I heard people speaking like this, I thought that it was a kind of political correctness, that you just needed to acknowledge these people to make people like me feel better. And I, I believe that myself. And over time, as I've come to understand the pivotal role that these people played, I've realised the extent to which there is this kind of conspiracy to diminish their achievements so that you start to internalise the idea that they don't really deserve to be there but we should put them there so it looks more diverse. Tick the boxes. Yeah, they are there on merit 100% and it's so powerful And their stories erasure. are interesting to everybody you know, it's not just a thing of like, oh yeah, it's like I mean, there are so many mediocre white men in, in central <laughs> London on these plinths. We're going to need a lot more of these books, a lot of cement and some blue plaques. <laughs> We're ready to go. There's a lot of work to That's do. the kit. There is. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you so much and for I having know me. everyone's going to love the book. Oh. Oh, that's so kind. That was Afro Hirsch talking about her book, British, on race, identity and belonging. It is not out-ish. It is not available-ish. It is out and available right now. Not now-ish. Now. I'm getting a bit too overexcited. It's a fabulous book. I know you'll love it. It's also available in audiobook if you are an audio person like me, read by Afwa herself. 2018 is going to be a rip-roaring year for amazing authors on the podcast, so make sure you don't miss an episode. You can follow us on Twitter, at Vintage Books. You can subscribe to our newsletter there, and you can subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. Until next time. 